Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Sometimes when folks talk about a gold standard of service, they talk about anticipating the needs of someone else. And I think that's problematic. It doesn't have to be the goal. Moreover, getting it wrong is only human, and no one's perfect. No one's a telepath. Accepting our imperfections is hard, and asking someone how you can help them, that's going to require some courage. I think asking for someone to help us sometimes requires more courage, especially if we're a certain kind of human. And I think all of that kind of ties together when asking someone else what they want might be seen as asking them for help on our task of anticipating what they want. Tilly's back to help us get some clarity on this topic and to talk more about anticipatory service. But first, we're going to delve into some early non-monogamy experiences and learn a little more about who Tilly is. I'm excited to share our discussions with you on these two topics. I appreciate you. Thanks for coming back and listening to us have fun and talk and talk (laughs) again and again. Thank you so much. But I won't name the community. (laughs) So I got into poly... I was 19 years old. Like, I knew that I wanted to explore non-monogamy when I was a teenager, but I had no language. I had no role models. I had no access. Right. And then I was at a convention and ran into an old friend of mine who we had considered dating many a few years ago. And then mm-hmm. I was like, hey, it's you. It's me. This is good. And we were vibing. And... They were like, oh, I'm involved in this poly community. So we start dating. He brings me to the poly community. I start dating other people and end up involved with, like, the leaders of the community. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm I'm laughing with you. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know, because I'm looking back at, like, 19, 20-year-old Tilly, and I'm like, oh, sweetie. (laughs) What did you do? Um, (laughs) What did you do? What did you do? And we ended up in this messy polycule that lasted six years. Wow. Six years of like, I'm with so-and-so. I am in a primary triad with these people. I'm... Wow. You know, then I'm like secondary to like two people in this group and exes with half of them and we're all interconnected and it was way too much and it was way too interconnected and um there was terrible boundaries and there was what i called revolving door primary where like you 
you got involved with people. NRE kind of launched you into primary status. Oh, goodness. And then things would change. And then you would stop being primary. And almost automatically, you'd become primary with other people in the group who wow. you had shifting relationships with. And it was it was sad and complicated and has left me like with a lot of experience to learn from. I worry that that my reactions like betray my bias um, in that I I tend to react strongly even to the word primary because I'm totally okay with having a hierarchy of obligation. I understand that sometimes you literally have the father of your children or, you Uh know, the, the co-parent of your children or someone else who you're, you're socially monogamous with, which is to say you share funds, you, you go to the same events sometimes together, like those kinds of relationships. Um, Oh, that doesn't make sense, actually. When I said socially monogamous, I did not mean going to events together. I meant sharing finances. Sorry. Was right. What I meant so to say. more like financial monogamy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, fi- so that kind of sharing finances can be called social monogamy because mm-hmm. it's it's one of those like um, we are now one person kind of mm-hmm. dealies. Right. So there's like the the idea that your sexualities are now like one thing and they will never be rendered in twain, like like sexual <laughs> yeah. monogamy. But then there's also like your your social lives, including things like money. So mm-hmm. I often make that distinction because biologists make that distinction in animals, mm-hmm. whether they're socially monogamous or sexually monogamous. Okay. So it's like forging a life together versus being exclusive sexually with each other. Mm-hmm. Where was I going with all of this? Um, hierarchy of obligation so as a relationship anarchist for me i have no issue with people who are like no i have a hierarchy of obligation so i'm required to do you have these responsibilities i have to like take care of my kids Mm -hmm. i have to spend time with the co-parent of my kids like those are non-negotiable for me i'm like cool when we start getting into this person's my primary partner no wait this person's my primary Mm. partner it becomes a hierarchy of control sometimes which in a negotiated bdsm capacity totally cool what I worry about is sometimes in the non-consensual non-monogamy community, for clarity, in the consensual non-monogamy community, there is there is sometimes an un like a not negotiated power dynamic, and often the types of hierarchy of power that people are playing with is stuff that in like the BDSM world, most I think would say it's advisable to get some education on exchanging power when that power involves third parties who you might be harming. Yeah. Right? And, and potentially negotiating with the third party. That's, Absolutely. Like, I have actually grown into relationship anarchy. Yeah. And the funny thing was it was actually um, my one of my best friends who we were talking about things. And she's like, I think I'm more of a relationship anarchist. And we were talking about, like, our friendship dynamic and our friendship dynamics with mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's true of me too. Um, just how things have evolved over time. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, in my experience when I was in my twenties, in poly like explicitly polyamorous communities, when we talked about things like you know primary, secondary, tertiary, like all those hierarchical terms, I found there wasn't a lot of definition and negotiation about. What does it mean to be primary? What does it right. mean to be secondary? Right. What does it mean? Like, what am I signing up for? Totally. When I enter this relationship with you. Oh, um, you didn't mention that you have veto arrangements with your primary. Yeah. Or you mentioned that, but you haven't really talked Told about me the mechanism. What that is. Yeah. What that or what triggers the veto? Right. Yeah. So the I can. The wind. Dis- the, the wind <laughs> triggers wind. the veto. Sometimes the wind triggers the veto. Yes. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm so jaded sometimes. Just from like my exposure to 
to those sorts of ideas. In some cases, it's literally just been observing friends just getting emotionally shit kicked yeah. and just being like, fuck that noise. Like, I, I get it on some levels and on other levels. It's like, I practice monogamy for five years. Like, it's not like I'm a stranger to monogamy. I've watched mm-hmm. all the movies. I've watched the rom-coms. I know the scripts. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to say I'm an outsider in the sense that I was raised monogamous in a monogamous society with monogamous media. Yeah. And I just, like, I really struggle when it comes to harming third parties. And I think people don't always understand, like, the implications of a veto when the execution of that veto looks specifically like never speaking to this person again. It doesn't leave room for compassion. It doesn't leave room for just, like, kindness and closure and healing and all the things that are important at the end of a relationship. Yeah. And also, I find that, like, it's really scary not to have control over your partner. And it's really scary to embrace that level of autonomy, mm-hmm. right? Because we are so, re- like, romantic monogamous relationships in our society come with all this control baggage, like, about yeah. ha- people's appearance and how they dress and potentially the jobs they take, um, which I really struggle with. I really, str- And that's probably why I'm where I am socially and you know, in my relationship practices. And you mean like why you're practicing relationship anarchy? Yeah. yeah. Why why I ended up practicing relationship anarchy, like not even polyamory. Right. Um, Because it's really, I, I, and I think it's because I had a lot of experiences in polyamory where people were trying to exert control, either negotiated or Mm non-negotiated over their partners and like how their their partner's relationships looked or how they impacted them or how things looked socially. I remember one of my partners, um, I was mourning my father's death Mm -hmm. and my partner agreed to be polyfidelitous to me for three months, which is not very long when you're mourning a parent. Right. Um, But it was very important to him at that point that I never tell anyone in the larger polyamory community that he had agreed to do this for me. Wow. Yeah. This Which... is this is so typical of alternative communities where like the judgment of other members almost threatens your membership in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was it it was amazing and I think if I hadn't been like consumed with grief, that would have been more of a red flag than it was at that point. Um so I think I think having gone to this and having had experiences in polyamory where we were trying to exert like control and privilege and hierarchy over other relationships and it not working or it not working well or it mm-hmm. not creating actual happiness or security. I think that's why I've embraced the whole like, no, you date who you want to date and that relationship turns into whatever you figure out is best for you. And the only thing I can control is my participation in your life. Yeah. Ultimately, I think relationships succeed or fail on their own merit. Yeah. And I think that concept is so hard for some people. Like the notion that they're responsible for their part in a relationship is radical. Yeah, exactly. And you can't blame it on some someone external to the relationship between you 
and the persons you've chosen to be with. I mean, it's tempting. Like, I see the temptation. I get why when, when folks are struggling and they're like, well, you know, if my partner hadn't been offered something that like starkly contrasts what we have, they wouldn't have come to these revelations that they want something better in their life. And like, I think a lot of people go to a very comparative place there. And I don't think that's necessarily good. But if a person has a personal epiphany being like, it doesn't have to be a strife. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's beautiful in a sense. It's harrowing. Yeah. But if someone's deciding to live their best life, and, and I'm not putting any judgment on, you know, you only love someone if or any of that nonsense. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think it's really important to hold space for that and just let people do what's in their best interest, even when it's like a fucking knife to the heart. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important. What's really funny is um, the polycule that I described that I uh, was in my early 20s, that my my involvement lasted about six years. What was really funny is why I ended the relationships wasn't because of new people in my life. In fact, I ended up being single for the first time in six years at the end of all of that. It wasn't because of other people. It was because I was just like, no, the relationships I'm in aren't feeding me. They aren't bringing goodness to my life. They aren't improving my life. Mm. And maybe being single is better and that actually turned out to be true for me. And that's something that I try to carry forward to people when I talk to people who are really struggling in relationships. Like it, if it ends up in a certain loggerhead where it's like my needs are legitimately never getting met in this mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. or my boundaries are always being crossed in this situation. I'm like, you can be better off alone. That is a viable option. FYI. And, and it doesn't have to be an always or never to make that call. It can just yeah. be, you know, like my boundaries have been crossed one more time than I wanted them to be crossed. Yeah. yeah. Or, or were crossed in such a way that I felt was negligent or I thought was inconsiderate of me. Or when they were crossed, which is sometimes not the issue, the way it was dealt with was a really defensive. It wasn't like, oh, I'm sorry, I really fucked up, I'm going to change. I, Or at the very least, I'm going to do everything in my power not to fuck up the same way again. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. that. That's, for me, a big thing about boundary crossing is, like, how is it treated? Is it is it honored as a bad thing? Is it... Is, are there steps taken to avoid the situation? Is there some effort to somehow make things better for you, what, however that looks, right? Like, that's important stuff. Yeah, it's relationships. And it can be really hard. Sometimes you or your relationship do not have it inside to survive a person growing through a thing. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the hardest things, at least for me historically in the past, to accept that, like, you know, a partner doing a certain thing even if every time it happened, it was way better than any of the previous times. I've been in relationships where I wish that I had been a different person almost. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish that I could have survived those those incidents. But that change, it just kind of was cumulative. Like, the effects of it were cumulative on me and on my relationship in a way that I wish they weren't. Like, I wish that I had the resources to process through these things. Mm -hmm. But as this partner became closer and closer to resolved and able to engage with me in the ways that I wanted, my, like, nagging sense of of bitterness and my 
honestly, I see it as a failure to forgive. Mm. Like my inability to work through this baggage led me to a place where the relationship wasn't sustainable anymore. And it sucked. Because to this day, I love that person. Yeah. I, I went through a thing where... I was really not in my best place. Like I was in a place where I was struggling and I had been struggling for a long time with things that were like personal to me, but I believe had been affecting the relationship. And then Mm -hmm. my partner was like, I need to do this big change for myself, for my own needs. And I was not able to process that well. I needed way more time and I needed compassion. And I didn't have the resources to like communicate like, give me a few weeks. I was just, I was just reacting. All I was doing was reacting. And my partner didn't have, didn't have whatever skills would have been necessary either. Right. Like neither of us was in a place to navigate this change and it happened. And I still feel really bad because I'm like, yeah, that change could have happened. And we could have probably gone back to a similar relationship that we had for like the first year of our relationship which worked fine for both of us Mm -hmm. but i'm like oh i didn't have the resources it seems like this person didn't have the resources either oh that just happened right like yeah there was not the resources between the two of us to navigate the change in a positive way and i i still I've, I've stopped regretting it quite so much, but mm-hmm. I still feel sad. Like, I still feel sad that that's how and why it ended. I empathize. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have a, similar stories around this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh. Good transition point. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned a polycule. Mm-hmm. And I was going to get clarity on that literally 15 minutes ago, but we had such an engaging conversation. <laughs> Did you want to talk a little bit about what a polycule is now? So a polycule is a cluster of linked relationships. And this happens in, I've encountered this in um, non-monogamous and consensual non-monogamy or polyamorous communities where it's kind of like, Joe is dating Dale. Dale has three partners. Each of those three partners has two partners. And right? one of those is dating Joe. And one of those is sometimes, yes. Sometimes, sometimes there's there's a nice little circle. But really, some people call it a constellation because mm. it just looks like a pattern in the stars with random lines drawn between all these nodes. Yeah, I, yeah. I do like constellation yeah, it's vocabulary. Like, it's like a greater cluster of people who all sleep with some other person in the cluster, which in a grand scale really looks like all the people on earth. But (laughs) typically when we use the term polycule, we're probably referring to a local community or small group of folks who sort of believe similar ish things about non monogamy. (laughs) I don't even feel like that's accurate. No, no. Cause I, I feel there's some romantic or sexual link, right? Like, that's a very polyamorous perspective. Yeah, it's a very polyamorous perspective. I'm still learning. I'm still working well, on my RA. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> mean that as like a... I mean, people in yeah. RA can be polyamorous. So, yes. And they can be monogamous, too. I know a relationship anarchist who's monogamous. Oh, excellent. I, I heartily believe that that is true. And I'm on this 
in this relationship anarchy discussion group and ever so often people are like relationship anarchists can't be monogamous and i'm like but if it's the relationship that works for you and you're choosing it consensually how is that not a thing like literally yeah anarchy is not about having no rules it's about only only having the rules that all participants agree to Mm -hmm. i think that's the key piece that a lot of people miss about relationship anarchy so it's about having more conversations and being less scripted and that can a hundred percent look like polyamory or like monogamy i the reason i made the observation that it was a very polyamorous perspective to think about relationships as intimate specifically if they're sexual or romantic mm. is is a lot of people who practice ra have really intense intimate relationships with and people who don't practice ra with um with people like roommates or yeah. with like, you know, people with whom you're in a domestic relationship, maybe a nesting relationship. Um, co-parents of children may not be romantic or sexual interests, but when it comes to your kids, you may be like 120% on each other's side, like playing on the same team, you have the same goal. And it's just such a neat way to look at the way our intimate relationships with other people form and dissolve and, and being able to sort of like, hold space for that ebb and flow such that new relationship energy and like people that one is very interested in having all the feels for or doing all the sex with that those don't necessarily have to be the champion relationship or the paragon that everyone looks to yeah i think that's i think that's a very good decision and framework yeah part of what informs my um relationship anarchy is mm -hmm. the strength of some of my friendships mm. right is that testify yes is that i have people in my life that like literally i know i can show up in their city and be like hey it's me where's the spare room <laughs> right you know and 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 there's longevity that those relationships and maybe not a lot of frequency actually i the other day i realized my favorite a lot of my favorite relationships are low frequency high intentionality oh i like that right I like that. so it's like not about how much time we spend together or how often we spend that time together but that when we spend time together there is a certain focus an acknowledgement that like I am here to spend time with you and maybe it involves these certain activities or it involves a little bit of shift to how I do things because you're here and it is important for me to be with you in this like I am I am focused on you to a certain extent even if like one of my best friends I go down and visit her and we spend half our time on the couch and she's playing on her with her iPad and we're like talking and it looks very low-key but i'm like but this is how i spend time with her and that is so important to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that also speaks to love languages mm -hmm. like um having a love language like focused time or focused attention like that doesn't need to happen in a sexual or romantic context yeah like a lot of those needs for connection and community and love and and intimacy and I think I said them all. Um, I'm sure there are more. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of those needs can be met by friends. Mm -hmm. And they can be met by friends in very significant ways. In the same way that some people will say, oh, well, the time I spend with my sibling is incredibly precious to me. It means so much. Like that relationship is not like any other relationship. If you come at it from a, a polyamorous framework or a monogamous framework, I mean, it, it really doesn't leave space for family relationships, except by putting this asterisk 
um, on all love and intimacy and saying, oh, but accept your family. But that's yeah. kind of garbage if you don't have a super intense family bond, but mm -hmm. you're instead forming found family bonds. And mm -hmm. I think that's why relationship anarchy is growing in popularity, because all of these folks, misfits, freaks, etc. Um, I, I say all those terms lovingly. If you yes. don't identify with them, I'm not <laughs> talking about you. Um, all of those folks are in the process, like you said, of, of finding those found family relationships where you can really depend on people and find a sense of community and replace those things that maybe we lost because our family disowned us because we were, you know, what have you, um, queer, transgender, kinky even, even just non-monogamy can be mm -hmm. enough for some families. It just depends yeah. on your family. Or just not, not fitting well. Like I... I haven't investigated this as much as I'd like, but I kind of believe that I'm the child of two black sheep. Got you. Right? Even though that's a bit of a, not sure if that's a great, the best term, right? But sure. like, I, I feel like both my parents were a little bit misfits mm -hmm. from their family of origin. So my family of origin is actually a little bit isolated from a larger network of family of origin. Right. And one of the things that was really important for me and a blessing for me is is as I became a teenager and started branching out in the world and I felt like a bit of a misfit in my own family and maybe it's because I was the first one to come out as queer um, later when my siblings came out as queer and then later my mother outed both her and my father as closeted queers wow yeah it was that's intense uh, yeah it's a big argument for genetic for the genetics, right? Um, and then in my 20s, I was very much searching for chosen family. And I never, I was never disowned, or I never had to draw harsh boundaries with my family of origin around like, I'll never see you or I'll only see you if you accept certain things, etc, etc. Like I do still basically, I still have a family of origin, but my chosen family, in many ways, is also vital to my survival. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel as well. It's, I mean, my family of origin is, is very dysfunctional, but I still love them and still want to have a stronger relationship with them. I'm just not sure that that can always be on my own terms. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm slowly moving out of a place where I insist it must be on my own terms. It's like once, once I've experienced enough acceptance of who I am, um, as an, like a relationship anarchist and as a kinky fucker, you know, um, once, once I have enough acceptance of that and my tank feels like full and I feel solid and confident in my identity, it's, it's less about requiring my family of origin to acknowledge who I am instead of denying it or, you know, treating me really badly because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, not that I've ever experienced anything too horrible, but you know, not non non communication and and the sideways comments and like, I'm sure we're all familiar with that kind of stuff. And a lot of the time, it's just people trying to cope with understanding who you are and yeah. why did you have to change. And it's like oh, I didn't really change. I just decided to start telling the truth because I thought you could handle it and be respectful. Yeah. Or I, this is how I what I grew into, and maybe this yeah. didn't manifest when I was seven years old. But it started when I was 17, and now I'm 27. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my case, it definitely started, like, I started having thoughts that I just thought were, like, not well thoughts mm. um, when I was probably, like, nine, nine, ten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I never knew I was kinky. 
mm-hmm. even at like 20, 24 years old when I went to my first dungeon party, it was like, oh, I didn't know this thing existed. And like, I don't really understand, like we're allowed to do this. And like, I don't understand how this is okay. And like, why do you, and all I did was be my usual self, which is go and talk to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And when I'm really curious about something, ask a lot of questions. So I asked a lot of like, why do you do this? Or like, how does this feel for you? And like, is it is it okay that you're in this many relationships? Is it okay that you're in relationships that look like this, that look like they have physical violence involved? And like just getting a lot of my misconceptions challenged and being really open to talking about it. So I literally played at my first dungeon party. I played with two different people, which as a best practices note, this is probably not the best way to go about <laughs> doing this. I also had a lot of privilege in being a mask presenting human and playing with femme presenting humans mm. and both of them were cis women, um, to my knowledge, and both of them had girlhoods, more importantly, which means they, they had all this socialization that mm-hmm. made the situation safer for me than if all those cards were stacked in a different order. Yeah, yeah, there w- was at least a bit of a foundational social script about how to interact with each other. Yeah, yeah, there was, and... I really enjoyed the conversations I had with them before we played. Mm. Having said that, today, I would not play with someone after having one conversation. But they were in that glorious space of not being brand new to the community, Mm. but not having been part of the community for, like, more than five years. Right. So there's this, like, glorious space where, and I'm sure it's different for everybody, but for me, when I got to that place, it was like, oh my God, I just, there's so much, there's so many amazing things. Let me show you all the things. Like, what do you want to know? Let me talk to you. I have all this energy and I'm like super excited and passionate about this new thing that has just been liberating and has been so powerful for me. And I'd love to share that with you. Um, yeah. Sort of like my, my 12th step of acceptance. You, know? <laughs> you finally, you finally get this place of like, I've accepted myself and it's like, let me help. Exactly. You're, you're there for the newcomers. Yeah. I, I used to do greeting at MVK, which is Metro Vancouver Kinks monthly dungeon party. So I would I would greet newcomers and I would answer all their questions and I would show them the dungeon and show them the aftercare area and try and try and explain things and I would I would give them business cards with my FetLife name on it and I had resources on my FetLife page. FetLife for those who don't know is like Facebook for kinky people. <laughs> So I was just like this outreach human and I was like, let me do all the things. So when I came into the community, I was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a greeter at MBK that mm-hmm. gave me the important advice. You know, you're going to get out what you put in. So that's a choice that's entirely up to you. It's it's great if you feel comfortable talking to people. How can I help? What do you want to get out of tonight? I said, well, I want to meet people. And the greeter said, okay, like, what kinds of people do you want to meet? And being a 24-year-old, you know, socialized as a man, human, I was like... 24 year old women and the greeter was like i can do that for you and i was like what is this i can't talk to 24 year old women when i like desperately need to to ask them for help with homework it's like how am i supposed to talk to 24 year old women who are in a dungeon who like are confident who are in relationships who have like figured all this social baggage out like i as like this nerdy you know um science graduate like could not tell you the first bit about yeah yeah it was intense and it was amazing and i learned so much and i'm so grateful for the people that i've randomly stumbled into who just gave me such a wonderful accepting open arms um welcome and then who um just helped me with my first scenes and helped me learn and helped me grow so i can't remember where i started into the story but (laughs) oh my god the journey's been amazing yeah 
Do That's, you remember? That actually sounds like a pretty ideal first time. I was so fortunate. Like, yeah. so fortunate. Yeah. What were we talking about? Hey, uh... We started talking about, like, relationship anarchy and poly, and we just, like, we ended up here. That's okay. Yeah, that's good. It's, it's a really different place. Oh, I wanted to mention as well, um, I've started saying polyam instead of poly wherever I can mm. um, because of the whole Polynesian connection. Yes, I, I am trying to train myself. It's so hard because so I've been hard. doing it for so many years. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But so if you, catch, if you catch me saying poly, feel free to correct me to polyam. I'm totally yeah. okay being called out for that. That's why I'm trying to say the whole, like, polyamorous, the yeah. entire word. Polyamory, yeah, polyamorous, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's even easier identifying more as a relationship anarchist than a polyamorous person. Mm. Because for me, it's like, oh, I don't even have to worry about shortening it. I just say R.A. Yeah, R.A. <laughs> Although, you know, people are like, what does that stand for? Right. But yes. Then you, a... then you decide whether or not you want to be an ambassador. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah. Forced ambassadorship is its own podcast. Oh, yes. A, at the very least, its own episode of a podcast. Um, you mentioned polyfidelitis earlier. And I wanted to ask you then, but again, I was very enthralled and enraptured and ensconced in the conversation. <laughs> in, in my past experiences, as I like to say, do as I say, not as I've done. <laughs> um, so polyfidelitous is when you have more than one relationship, but things are closed off. So you're not necessarily looking for more partners. So we often see this in small groups where people are all in relationship with each other, like a triad mm -hmm. or a quad where mm -hmm. there's three or four people involved. And so, yes, there's multiple relationships, but no one's looking for new partners. No one will be added in necessarily. That's so interesting because when you said polyfidelitis, what I got was a closed poly, not, not, not so much a closed poly group mm. where everyone's seeing everyone else or mostly seeing everyone else, but like, a constellation of non-monogamous people where the person decided not to add any new partners. Mm. So that can look like having like several totally disjointed non-monogamous relationships. When I say totally disjointed, I'm not advocating for the radical autonomy. My partners don't talk to each other. I'm mm -hmm. advocating for a community model of my partners all well, firstly to be consensual. They all need to know about each other. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, or at the very least, know that you have these other partners and know what their risk profiles are in order to give informed consent. Mm -hmm. That's just my personal perspective. So when I think about these multiple relationships that a person might have, choosing not to add any relationships could be seen as being polyfidelitous to all of their current partners. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a definition that makes sense as well. I mean, I'm I haven't really that was the only time where i was in a situation that i would describe as polyfidelitous so i am open to my definition not being up to date or not being entirely accurate or, or being very accurate but just being one definition mm -hmm. and having their having it look like multiple things mm -hmm. like it's totally fine to have a closed poly group and call it polyfidelitous that totally meets exactly the definition i outlined it's just a specific case of it yeah and i like having like a very robust definition that stands up to a lot of use cases, but that's just me being a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. So we we tackled a lot of non-monogamy stuff, and I was I was super interested in delving a little more into service. Into are service. You, are you interested in having some of that conversation with me? I am ready to talk about service. Amazing. So speaking of being of asking someone to be polyfidelitous to give myself a segue, I'm interested in talking about how much of service is anticipation of someone else's needs. 
Well, you see, anticipatory service is often talked about as kind of the ideal gold standard of service. Um, <laughs> so, so just to define service, because we like definitions here. Yeah. Um, I view service as anything that enhances another's life. Love it. Yeah, because I, I like very broad, broad definitions. So um, it can be doing something for another. It can be doing something on someone's behalf. It can be doing something to that person. Um, it can be providing amusement or entertainment for a person, which I, I witnessed a few years ago. And it kind of opened my mind as to what service could be. And I was like, yes. Yes, making fun of other people for someone's enjoyment could be, be an service. Act, it could be an act of service. Um, so anticipatory service. Ooh, before we before we move off the definition, okay. can I chime in with the definition? Yes, love it. I'm gonna actually um, submit mm-hmm. a more restrictive definition of service. Okay. Oh, so challenge me oh. on this. Feel free to challenge me on this. Okay. So you were talking about service as a way of enhancing someone else's life. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the ways in which when I play with others, I may be doing play that is very much for feeding my needs for whatever. Maybe it's needs for mastery. Maybe I want to practice being amazing at a thing. So I do this skill and it's maybe like a short, let's just say it's a short scene, 20 minutes. And it's me practicing a certain rope tie, let's say. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I really want to do is practice this rope tie and get better. And it's highly convenient this other person wants to be tied. Mm-hmm. So for me, if that if that scene, if the consideration is primarily here are needs of mine that I want to get met, and it's great that your needs align with that, I look at that as like a really positive mutual overlap of needs. Mm. I don't think of it necessarily as service. On the other hand, if this person was like, I have these really intense needs to be tied right now. And I'm like, I'm really take it or leave it. I'm not super needing to do rope. But if you want to do rope tonight, I'm happy doing rope. But the needs I'm getting met are like seeing your needs get met. So when Mm -hmm. my primary need of engagement is someone else's needs, I consider that service. So it's like, am I enjoying someone else getting their needs met or am I filling my own needs? And I get how those are the same thing when you're doing service because you may have needs for seeing someone else get their needs met. So I'm going to say something that might be a bit controversial among service-oriented people. Okay. We love love controversy here. Yeah. I'm like, service-oriented people, get your pitchforks and torches ready. I'm going to say it. I believe that service or people who are oriented towards performing service mm-hmm. for another, that we do have needs and we get them met through performing service for another. Definitely. I, d- sorry, was that really highly controversial? Um, I think it's I think it's controversial for some per- people because there's this idea that like service is a gift sure. and that service should somehow like the. The, the epitome of service is selfless. I have a really hard time with that. Oh, as a, as someone who does service, I do too. Because, and I think this segues nicely into burnout, which we'll touch <laughs> on in a, later, in a minute. Um, sure. I, I think that some, a consideration that you should have whenever you're doing service, whatever service looks like, whether yeah, yeah, it yeah. is kind of public community service or interpersonal service between a couple people or like serving a particular group. I think at some point 
you should kind of put a bead on what is it that I'm getting out of this situation and how can I maybe not leverage it, but how can I ensure that my needs are getting met in a sustainable way in this situation? So if my need is to be useful, how can I get that reinforcement that I have been of use? If my need is to please a particular individual, how do I make sure that that gets done? If my need is to use my skills or ability in a certain way, how, how do I do that? Mm -hmm. When I think about that, that archetype of, of selflessness, I, I think about how even people donating their time and volunteering, as I do myself, mm -hmm. are sometimes getting the need vent of feeling good mm -hmm. and that it's, I, I'm not sure I believe in such a thing as true altruism. And I don't think, I, I don't think we need that. Like, I don't think it's important whether or not someone gives their time or money or energy out of a place of, I want to get my needs met or whether they do it out of some selfless place. Ultimately, I would rather a person donating, um, say, say money to help mm -hmm. me on Patreon or a person donating their time or energy such as yourself to help me do the art projects and, and share the things I'm passionate about with the world. I don't think it, it necessarily matters if people are doing that selflessly. The point is they did it. Like the point is mm -hmm. they helped. And I think that's true for, for any charity. I love how I position myself as a charity. I'm like, it's, it's not, it's not perfectly, it's not perfectly charitable, but, um, cause yes, I am delivering a product, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. That ties into the whole self-worth thing. But what I will say is for people say donating money to, to UNICEF, if, if we wanted only the people who are truly selfish to self selfless to give money, there'd be much less money in the pot. It doesn't fucking matter if people are like, I'm going to give money and feel great about myself. It's like, cool. You could be a capitalist who felt great about yourself and didn't give money. Or you can be a capitalist who feels great about yourself and gives money. I would rather you be the second one. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of science that goes on in nonprofit fundraising about how to maximize the good feeling people will give of giving you money. Totally. So they will continue to do give that. Money. Um, which... I, I don't see anything wrong with with yeah. that science with using social science for that ends. Um, well, we're going to use it for everything else. We might as well use it for doing good. <laughs> hopefully, yes. Um, yeah. So I think I think that's something to kind of acknowledge and to try to build into your service yeah, interactions. Su sustainability is, is what do I get out of service, mm -hmm. and how can I make sure that need is getting met. And if I'm in a situation where I can negotiate, can I negotiate somehow for that need to get met? And sometimes, and sometimes service does also meet the needs, I'm going to mention this, of feeling an interpersonal connection, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling connection and intimacy with someone as you do service for them, because I believe service can become a really intimate act, especially when we look at this angle of anticipatory service. Definitely. Um, because I believe to do anticipatory service well, you need to be aware of someone's needs and desires, right? And I'm going to use the example of coffee. Definitely. As a simple one. I think we can all relate. I have been served coffee in a bodum before and had it be intimate and loving and amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I've also just had it be coffee. You've also just had it be coffee, right? And so this person needs to know things like, 
A, do you drink tuck coffee? B, would you appreciate it being served to you? Or do you need the freedom to get up and do the coffee yourself? So maybe this person should like make sure you have coffee beans and that your bottom is like clean and available for you, but they should stay in bed. Or maybe they try to wake up before you do, go quietly into the kitchen, make the coffee for you. Or maybe if they know it's a fancy coffee day, they get up, go out, get your fancy coffee, but then they need to know your fancy coffee order. Yeah. Which when we're talking fancy coffee, we all know that can be like incredibly complicated. Definitely. Um, If someone was getting coffee for me, they'd have to know that after 1 p.m. I cease drinking caffeine. Trying to think of what fancy coffee orders I know. So no foam, no whip, half sweet but all the flavors you have to be on top of all the flavors i i wish i wish i knew one of my former partners fancy orders you know it's interesting when we talk about um what exactly what we're talking about the um the notion of knowing all these things Mm -hmm. is a form of emotional labor Mm -hmm. and it's one that a lot of femmes are again socialized um especially if you were socialized femme um you that you sometimes are socialized to know all these things yeah to to first know that it's something to know. Right. And then to figure out how to know. Like, it's one thing if I was like, hey, Victor, I want to get you coffee sometime. Right. I feel moved to get you coffee sometime. Mm-hmm. What is your coffee order? Totally. There's That's one strategy to go about it. The other strategy is to covertly observe you. Which is so common. Yes. And I think the danger with covert observing, even though it has the benefit of like star power, because when you unleash and you're like, hey, look what I did. I did all this cool stuff for you. There is, I would say the risk, especially when dealing with um, a heterosexual relationship or a cis man, that there may, that there may be entitlement to that service or for that matter, not even necessarily a cis man, but someone who's um, trying to be um, in a dominance power exchange Mm. position there's the risk that it could land as something they're entitled to Mm -hmm. and there's further the risk is it landing at all as service right this may be highly intimate for for me to go and learn all these things about this person and and make this thing and invest the time and energy and be like here this is the product of hours of loving service and have the other person be like oh cool coffee and just not see any of the work yeah and i think there's a danger especially if you're in more of an acquaintance relationship and you're trying to sidle up next to someone and do service for them where you do all of this outpouring of energy and you're really pleased with yourself i finally found someone who can receive my service who's Mm. and it just turns out it was falling flat for them and they didn't realize the service was important to you and they're like oh this person seems really nice yeah yeah (laughs) and it's and it's one of the it's such a danger i think i think because i was socialized female um as a girl right i had a girlhood i think that it's and and then Um, so my secondary socialization was kind of incomplete because I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, basically. So I was given some of these pieces, but then I didn't have a lot of friends. And then I hit the kink community. So a lot of my secondary socialization skills actually occurred within the kink community. Mm -hmm. So I actually tend to view people doing things for each other through kinky lenses. So service. So someone recently was like, I would love to have dinner with you. And I was like, that's super great. FYI, I have all these food allergies. This person took my list, called three restaurants. Wow. 
to make sure that they had like a robust selection of options for me and then reported back and said, here are these three options. Wow. Um, luckily they were kinky as well. So I was like, so you're like high executive level anticipatory service person, are you? And she was like, yeah, a little. And I was like, you're so cute. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you use the phrase executive assistant because I think there's this relegation of service to being necessarily submissive. And I don't think it has to be at all. It can be. Like think pepper pots. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Right. Get pepper shit pot. done. Um, Alfred from Batman is another one of my. Yes. Um, I would love an Alfred personally. If there's, <laughs> if there's an Alfred type looking out there to become like a wild creatures butler, please contact me. I need you so bad. I love it. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so that's the other thing is, and this again goes to like service. You may be serving someone, but there may be some dominance mixed into how you serve. Because if you think how Alfred is with Batman, like occasionally Alfred is like telling Batman what he has to do to maintain his Bruce Wayne persona so that Batman can continue to be Batman. Yep. Like, Batman could not be Batman without Alfred, mm -hmm. and Iron Man could not be Iron Man without Pepper Potts. Right. Yep. Yep. Executive assistants, they're not just really useful and, and functional, but sometimes I think more gets done in our community by slaves than by any other group of people. Yes. In terms of, like, activism, in terms of just, like, dealing with the highly stressful things in a day. Like, I look at... I Sometimes I just, like, see see a service-minded or a servant or a slave someone in that role functioning intensely like doing all the things and i'm just like i am exhausted watching you oh uh, can we give a shout out to someone on the mvk board who Please. i think is andy yes <laughs> yes we love you andy we love you andy this this was not planned out beforehand this is just spontaneously like we're talking about like highly efficient service people who are excellent at their jobs and pour so much into the community yeah yeah and i and i also want to shout out sarah as well oh just god resourceful never-ending seemingly doing all this work and all this emotional work and all this like just intellectual labor too yeah and just and holding the board together yeah and and having done it for so many years i think it's what is it seven now six or seven it's a lot of service it's a lot i mean whether or not Sarah defines it as service is is up to her, but it, it's a lot of being a public servant in the sense of the colloquial use of those words. Yes. 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 She volunteers a metric fuck ton. Exactly. And I am waiting to do your leathers again, Sarah, <laughs> <laughs> which is a way. That's the thing is like when you see people doing a lot of service, sometimes it is nice to sneak in there and see if you can do a little bit of service for them. Yeah, that in part in, in being part of their sustainability and their self-care, it's almost like you get a small piece of like and I helped with that big service thing they were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's inspiring sometimes watching other board members take on big projects or like get stuff done and just being like, "Wow, we did a thing as a board and like you did a thing." Like mm -hmm. that's that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, the board of directors is no one gets paid. It's a hundred percent volunteer. And some people put literally 10 to 20 hours a week into it. And it's just, it's, yeah. it's especially during like peak, peak periods of busyness. Mm -hmm. It's, it's incredible to watch the amount of effort people put into 
just improving their local community. Yeah. 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 Like I was involved at the beginning of MVK. I was actually workshop coordinator. When it was bio. Not actually. Yes. So for a few months when it was bio and then the transition happened. And then for a few months when it was MVK? For about, I think a year when it was MVK until I, until I stepped back and so I ran it kind of, um, I never went to, bo- I almost never went to board meetings. I think I went to two, maybe <laughs> just to confirm that I am a person, I am listening to you and this is great. Right, right. Um, but basically I would report to the then president about like, I've lined up this person and this is the thing. And can you do the promo and stuff like that? And that was like my maximum capacity. Like I can't do 10 to 20 hours of volunteer work yeah. a week. And it was just, it's just amazing everything that goes in. And the fact that the educational offerings have like expanded from once a month to like a few times a month. Which... Yeah. And in some cases it's, it's nuts. It, they'll, yeah. they'll be, they'll be like a workshop or we've started going more in the direction of doing a workshop every month. Mm-hmm. Um, that we put on in terms of legacy coursework. For those of you listening who are interested in education, um, you can check out MetroVancouverKink.com. Um, and, or, I mean, hell, you can go to my website, VictorSalmon.com, and I link to all the things on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can go to the podcast website, of course, IntimatePodcast.com. Yeah, shouting out all the links. <laughs> um, right. We were talking about workshops. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have tons of offerings. But more and more, we're going to this, like, model of trying to do parties before the party. Mm-hmm. So we have, like, a queer swarm party that we mm-hmm. do before the party. And then we also have Taste of Kink, which is, like... Um, the kind of organization sort of that you would have been doing in organizing all of these workshops. I literally, um, I, I do a lot of the organizing for taste of kink. And mm-hmm. when it comes to presenters, I'm like predominantly the lead on doing all of the organization of the presenters. So mm-hmm. I'll get like 14 or 15 educators together in a well-lit dungeon and arrange it such that there's like a friendly desk that newbies can walk up to. This is the new format we're going to. Nice. And they get to have conversations about their kink. And then after they've had conversations about like, Oh, what's, What's the what's this kink that you're presenting that you have a lot of experience in? Um, cool, could you demo it like on my hand or like? Essentially, we're trying to get safe people to together in one space so that new folks can come and learn about all these things in like a well lit, low noise environment. They mm-hmm. can have conversations. They can learn all these, all these important things if they're looking to start into a kink. Yeah. And the thing I expected least about it is it isn't all newbies. Mm. A lot of people who are seasoned, who have six plus years, 10 plus years are like, you know, I've never looked at needles before. They've always squicked me out. Why Mm. do you do this to yourself? (laughs) Um, And and we have um, lovely humans who do needles who are like, well, here are all the reasons. And here's the physiological explanation because some of them have professional training Mm. um, for using needles either in body mods or in healthcare. Um, Not that I want to out anyone. um, But... A lot of folks who do volunteer with us doing things like decorative cutting or needles or any of the bloody kind of forms of play that I know some of you right now are going, please stop talking. (laughs) I will probably put in a content warning. Um, Content warning. Blood. Blood, blood, blood. Blood, blood, blood. Uh, Yeah. And I think Taste of Kink wasn't happening in my day, let's say. But I think it's a great opportunity for and it's also low risk because then you don't have to necessarily form a relationship with a person to try this thing yeah and also if you try the thing and you hate it then there's no weird interpersonal stuff between you and your date right it's just like handshake thanks for trying that out never gonna do that again totally 
Yeah. It's a it's a really safe space to try things and I think it actually reduces the the negative load on kinksters because mm-hmm. when sorry, what I mean by that is mm-hmm. If someone comes to me and is like, hey, I just want to try this thing out. Can you do this thing for me? It's a request for service. Mm. They're asking me to be a service top and they're kind of objectifying me as a machine that provides this service. It's rarely asked in the context of an exchange. And even if it were in the context of an exchange, then there's all this question about entitlement and like, mm. and like, should people have to give something to get something, which in a lot of areas of life we say they should. But when it comes to things like providing a kink or sexual service, most people are like, that squicks me out of all these Puritan ideas about why that's not okay. Yeah. The idea that like anything close to sex work is terrible. Right. For some reason. Yeah. Which is funny because boot blacking can occasionally get. Sure. Have aspects that are sex work adjacent, which I totally own, but I have definitely had conversations with people who are just like, oh, but you got kind of sexy with that person's boots and then they gave you a tip. And I'm like, yeah, they did. And it's fine. I made them feel fucking awesome. And I loved how I felt doing it. You got a problem with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm 100% on that side of the argument. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Sex work is work. It's all fine. So doing things that are kind of like sex work is fine. And and like, to what extent do the people who disagree with sex work have no problem, say, going to Hooters or, or maybe even going to Denny's? And, yeah. and wanting to be served by a quote-unquote conventionally attractive human who mm-hmm. they then tip based on their quote-unquote service, whatever that means, other than flirting, I have no fucking idea. I mean, I, I know it has to do with getting food there on time, checking your water, et cetera. Like, I've worked yeah. in, in service, hilariously, yeah. um, seeing as we're having a conversation about a different kind of service or the same kind of service. It's just funny how, like, there are certain socially acceptable ways to be a servant, and sex isn't one of them. No. Yeah. Which... Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And I feel like if we had a better understanding of how sex work can look good, we mm-hmm. would have a better understanding of how to manage making sex work not exist as a thing that looks bad because there's always going to be, or there, there, I should at the very least say, there is a lot of sex work that I don't like because it's survival sex work mm-hmm. or it's exploitative sex work. I'm not trying to paint a veneer on sex work to say it's all good all the time. I'm just trying to hold space for the fact that sex work can be good yeah. and that we don't need to have judgments on people who are sex work or sex work adjacent or whatever you know yeah or people who are clients of sex workers absolutely either i mean on my list of of who gets the sympathy sex workers are always top right (laughs) in terms of like stigma you're like yeah we should desigmatize these people but they're not really important right now they're the ones holding all the cards with all the money exactly exactly they they you know disappear back into their day-to-day lives but it's the sex workers who are most stigmatized um and i and i do want to hold space for the for the people who access sex work who maybe are not super wealthy i don't mean to imply mm -hmm. that people always access sex work as some show of power there are definitely going to be folks who access it for a variety of reasons Mm -hmm. and some of those reasons are accessibility concerns Mm -hmm. so i don't want to be a dick in saying oh, all the people that access sex work are, are necessarily these people mm-hmm. who I feel like neutral about. Yeah. Um, th- there, is, there is a role, I think a very ethical role for sex work in society. It's just a question of finding, finding our stride, finding how that, how that look can look and feel for yeah. sex workers, for, for community that is, that is holding space for sex work to be going on in that community, um, what and, that can all look like. And the people who know that best are sex workers. Absolutely. Like when we're talking about what we should do to make sex work ethical and yeah. sustainable 
and destigmatized, let's first listen to sex workers. Yes. And hear what they have to say. Let's listen to the experts. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we don't go into hospitals and tell doctors how they should be doctors without letting other doctors tell doctors how to be doctors, you know? As a chronically ill person, I'm like, well, sometimes we do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, holding space again in that case for a patient perspective yes. is still asking an expert. I guess I used a really bad example. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, we, I think we have, we have talked that to death. Yes. Do you want to delve into service and how it relates to mindfulness? Yes, actually. That's something that I think I deliver a couple workshops on service with my leather brother, Ben, and something. So I think mindfulness, and I'm going to, I'm not going to necessarily use mindfulness as a substitution word for like meditation, which I find is used a lot these days. I'm using mindfulness as being an awareness of the present moment. Okay. That's what I'm using. So when we talk about service, we talk about being mindful of your motives, which I talked about earlier. Like, mm -hmm. what are your needs? What are you getting out of this interaction? What can you do to make sure that it's satisfying and sustainable? I also think you really need to be mindful of the person you are delivering service to or the organization or group. Mostly I'll talk interpersonally here. Um, because again, if we talk to the gold standard of anticipatory service, you need to know the person, you need to know their preferences. I think sometimes as a service person, you can actually get too wrapped up in your own needs. Like you need to have an eye on them, but you also need to have an eye on the person you're delivering service to. Totally. Um, because I think sometimes service feels good to do. You know, we want to be useful. We want to... Mm -hmm. um, we want to be skilled. We want to be pleasing. You know, we want to have all these needs met. And so sometimes we forget that the person we are serving is also a person. I think that also comes from a topping mindset, like mm. coming at service from I'm doing these activities. I need to be mindful of the person bottoming who's receiving me mm -hmm. organizing their, you know, files for them or whatever it happens to be. Like, yeah. I have to be mindful of my bottom and I have to be mindful of my own needs. Yeah, exactly. Right. Even even delivering coffee when you achieve the coffee, whether you purchase it or make coffee achieved. Yes. Um, you know, is the person awake to receive the coffee or is the person in mid conversation with someone? How can I deliver this coffee in a respectful way? Right. Hmm. Um, and also holding space for everyone's needs around the presentation of service. Because mm. sometimes the service is in how the coffee is presented. Mm -hmm. And ritualizing, delivering service can really help getting needs met. Yeah. Because what if, what if your arrangement is that you wake up early and you make the coffee and then you kneel and you wait for the person to Smell acknowledge the you and wake up and... yeah and acknowledge you and all of that thing right but what if something happens so that it's not going like what if you have to run to the 7-eleven and buy 7-eleven coffee um are you then going to forget the rest rest of the ritual or are you going to kneel wait for them to notice and be open to having a conversation about why it's 7-eleven coffee this morning instead of right. home ground 
yeah, do you interrupt the ritual and preface it? Are they responsible for smelling the coffee or are you responsible for telling them before they imbibe? <laughs> it, it's right. really like a fine tune. That's the nuance of the negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. Or knowledge of the person. Totally. Right. Like I, I, for me, if I was receiving the coffee, I am barely functional in the morning. <laughs> You're going to drink it and be like, wait a minute. Exactly. I'm going to like, the most important thing will be that you are delivering me caffeine, which is essential to life. Um, and then I might be like, halfway through the coffee, I might be like, why is this 7-Eleven coffee? And at that point where I ask you the question, I am ready to hear an answer. But before I drink the coffee, I do not want a two paragraph explanation right. of how you are so sorry that you ran out of coffee beans last night. I don't have room for that yet. Yep. Yeah. Whereas some people would probably want, sir, I am so sorry. I forgot the coffee beans. This is my three-point plan as to never running out of coffee beans <laughs> in your presence again. And then they imbibe the coffee. Yep. Or maybe you receive some sort of punishment for forgetting the... Uh... I'm, I'm definitely somewhere in the middle ground of like, before I drink the coffee, please tell me it's not the coffee I think it is. So that at the very <laughs> least, even if I'm not functional, you've made an attempt to get informed consent. And then I'm totally comfortable if I'm... You know, if I'm choosing to drink coffee when I'm not awake enough to really understand that it's not a certain type of coffee, it's not going to be the end of the world to me. Yeah. In fact, typically, if a person just served me a different kind of coffee, it wouldn't be the end of the world to me either. But <laughs> as a general rule, in terms of the type of human I am, I'm definitely like, tell me first and then I don't mind interruptions for the sake of clarity, I guess, is yeah. what I'm saying. I think we're leaning on the edge of like, when you do service, you need to communicate yeah. about, about these details, about like... What if something goes wrong? What is the best way to communicate to somebody Definitely. that something's gone wrong? So tell me a little bit about how mindfulness affects your wellness. Oh, so this is, this is hard for me, um, mm -hmm. actually. This is something I am actively working on with my therapist right now, and to a degree, also my physiotherapist. Um, so as we mentioned in the intro, I am chronically ill and mentally ill. And part of how that looks is that I compartmentalize. So when a difficult to deal with thing happens in my life, my brain sections it off from my experience and kind of puts it in the background mm -hmm. so that I can focus on the rest of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, compartmentalization may look different ways for different people, but this is how it looks for me. So I experience a lot of bodily pain daily, right? So... I'm going through my day-to-day -day life and I can be mindful of all sorts of things like my interactions with other people, you know, how things are going, what the sky looks like, but I might not be mindful of my own body. So right now I'm actually working on decompartmentalizing some of my physical experience mm -hmm. and being more aware of that. And what that is bringing to me is actually a more refined sense of when I am available to do service and when I am not, right? Because for me, when, I have, when I'm carrying too much of a load, physical or mental, I'm not really effective at service. I can try to, I certainly have tried to give it mm -hmm. and I will try to deliver it, but it won't be as good and it won't be as mindful of the other person because I can't even be mindful of myself. Right. So 
in refining my mindfulness of myself, I'm kind of aware of when I have more internal energy and resources and I'm available to offer them to others, mm-hmm. which is, was why earlier when we were discussing volunteer hours, I was like, yeah, I'm not the kind of person who can do 10 to 20 hours a week because I am being more mindful of how much I need to actually be in service to myself. Mm which is a framework that I started using two or three years ago when I was, um, when my mental illness came to the forefront of my life a lot. And I was like, oh, I can't offer service to others right now. I need to be in service to myself. I thought initially that would be like really tapping into my submissive side, but it's actually more about tapping into my dominant side Mm. and using discernment to figure out what do I need? How can I deliver it to myself with my available resources? And how can I increase my resources so that I can deliver more self-care and more self-love to myself on a regular basis? If you are a single submissive and this makes you feel uncomfortable, I highly suggest doing it. Yeah, I'm a fan of, of doing things that, that make me uncomfortable, especially when they relate to unexplored areas of my mental illness. Right. Sometimes it feels like the dog is being pet backwards because it's been pet backwards so much the fur is now forwards <laughs> that direction. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah. You yeah. kind of have to pet it back forwards. And, and the dog and is very unhappy <laughs> as, as you do this until it's happy that you're doing it. Yeah. And then it's like, why was I doing it the other way? This is so much better. I'm... My, my, my like resting stress level is so much lower. I feel like a person who's considered and valued. <laughs> what is this? And I was doing it to myself. How does that work? Yes, my childhood didn't feel like this. What's that about? <laughs> uh, yeah. Too true, too true. Yep. Oh my goodness. Well, that's a great natural ending point for the episode. <laughs> um, I would love to come back and talk more about burnout in a different session. Okay. I think that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise and sharing so much about RA and anticipatory service and non-monogamy. Thank you for having me here and letting me share all the thoughts that go inside my busy head. It's awesome. been really fun. Thank you. Thank you. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminas, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. 
shout out to the Sequepmec Nation on whose land I got my degree. Considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemloops Te Sequepmec folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.